This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So last week I was talking with a coaching client who told me that her toddler comes to the dinner table every night with the same question, what do I got to eat so I can have dessert? Now if that sounds familiar to you, or if you've had struggles feeding your kids healthy, then this week's episode is for you. My guest, Dina Rose, grew up in a household rife with dysfunctional lessons, attitudes, and behaviors related to food and eating. Her mother struggled with food and obesity and ultimately died of obesity-related illness when Dina was five months pregnant with her own daughter. She didn't want to repeat history, so she dove into the question of how to teach kids to eat healthy and how to develop a positive relationship with food over the long term. And it turns out that those two goals can be in conflict, getting them to eat a healthy meal today, some of the ways we do it, actually can contribute to dysfunctional attitudes and behaviors and relationship with food throughout our children's life cycle. So Dina is a sociologist, and so she was able to take a step back from the fads of the moment and look at the big picture issue of socialization. How do we pass values and habits and mindsets to our children? What she quickly figured out was we're doing it all wrong. Parents who know the difference between healthy food and junk food still end up giving in, giving up, and negotiating every bite like it was the entire building of hostages and Die Hard. Or they do what I did for many years, which was to enforce their iron will on every meal and turn family time into bitter, glaring battlegrounds. So Dina wrote a book called It's Not About the Broccoli. And this book is truly remarkable. You can turn all this around with grace and common sense, and I hope every parent of an infant, toddler, or child gets this message. I think they should bundle it with your baby <laughs> when, you, when you leave the hospital or birthing center or the midwife leaves your home. Just leave it on the table and say, please read this before your child turns one year old. So I have to say one thing. So Dina is not a nutritionist. So her views on healthy and unhealthy are fairly mainstream. They do not reflect the plant-based evidence that I share so abundantly on this podcast. So she talks about things like eggs and chicken being healthy foods, you know, cottage cheese, low-fat yogurt, stuff like that. Ultimately, that doesn't matter because we know better. And... It shouldn't matter to you because the principles are what's so important. The principles of dividing foods into healthy and unhealthy, into everyday foods, into junk. Um, and they become even more powerful and more precise and more useful when you want your kids to adopt a whole food plant-based diet. So I'm not great with predictions. I predicted that Forks Over Knives was going to flop because the title was silly. <laughs> And I'm also predicting now that this episode will be, if not the, one of the most downloaded and listened to and streamed episodes of the Plant Yourself podcast, because this information is so good and the need is so dire. So with that, and without any further ado, Dina Rose, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. I'm really glad to be here. Cool. Your book, It's Not About the Broccoli... Um, I can't remember who recommended it or where I, where I read about it, but I knew I had to get it. 
And as I said to you before we started recording, the, my only criticism of the book is that you wrote it 20 years too late for me <laughs> to, to implement it with my own family. I have a, uh, you know, a story of getting religion about food in about 2003 and coming home and see, you know, having seen the light and insisting that everyone in my family immediately adopt this uh, healthy <laughs> whole food plant-based diet and, and how'd that go over? <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you know, as you can imagine, um, I was not popular. There was a lot of, of pain. A lot, you know, dinner became a battlefield. And, mm -hmm. and as I was going through the, you know, chapter two, chapters one and two of, of your book, I was like, you know, every single one of those mistakes I had made in some, in some degree into some fashion and some of them multiple times. And, you know, I'm certainly more of a policeman than a, con than a conciliator, but you know, when you exhaust one, you move to the other. And I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> yep. this is, this is, this is like my, my rap sheet. And, um, I was, I was talking to a friend in, I told her about this book and, you know, she's struggling with a, a toddler and an infant and getting them to eat healthier. And I said, I told her I was going to be interviewing you today. And she said, yeah, you know, every time we go to dinner, my three, two and a half year old son sits there and he goes, how much do I have to eat in order to get dessert? <laughs> you know, so they, they've trained him to become like this hostage negotiator. That's right. Well, actually, there is really some interesting research that shows that all the techniques that we parents use to get our kids to eat well does more to teach them to be good negotiators, like you said, either so their future is going to be in the hostage negotiators or they're going to be great lawyers, but they may not be great eaters. <laughs> That's great. So before, before we get into the, the issue and the problems, I'm just curious how you, um, what, what your journey was like, how you came to be interested in this subject and to take the time and effort to become an expert at it. Yeah, well, I think that there are two uh, sort of parallel courses that got me here. One is that I am a sociologist by training, and so just, just my general outlook on life is, is to think about how parents shape behavior and how they transmit norms and values, you know, which is sort of socialization, which is the whole sort of underpinning of sociology. So that was my, that was my outlook to begin with. But also, you know, I grew up in a home that was very food focused because my mother constantly struggled with her weight. And so there were always discussions about what she should or shouldn't be eating. Even years when she wasn't overweight, she was always still struggling with it. And I think because I was the girl in the family, I had two brothers, I was the girl in the family, it sort of got transmitted to me to be very focused on, on weight and, and, you know, sort of looks and appearance and stuff like that. But when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now 14, my mother ultimately died of obesity-related illnesses. So she lost that struggle. She died when she was 65 years old. She weighed over 300 pounds. And as far as I can tell, for at least the whole time I knew her, she had a very miserable food life. And so a few months after my mom dies, I give birth to this little girl. Again, I, you know, I don't know if I would have taken this trajectory if I'd given birth to a boy. Not that it's not as important. I just think that I was very focused on how this legacy was going to be transmitted from my mother to me to my daughter. And I wanted to make sure that she had a happier food life 
than my grandmother did, uh, than her grandmother did. And um, so I got very focused on this idea of how do you teach kids to eat right. And because of my sociological training, I really knew that I had to look at habits and that the nutrition would sort of come along for the ride. And, And the very first thing that I knew that I was going to do was not ever going to make her finish her food because I knew that that was one of the things that people who are overweight struggle with, which is, you know, having self-control over how much they eat and listening to their internal hunger and satiety signals. So that's really where I started. But then what happened was that I was living in a community full of little babies because that's what you do. You go hang out with other moms who have kids And when those mothers started feeding their children, I noticed that they were really focused on nutrition and making sure that their kids got certain amounts of this kind of food and certain amounts of that kind of food. And they were using all these techniques that meant that they weren't thinking about their kids' lifelong habits. And it just all started to gel for me that there was a new perspective out there. And that's when I really dove into literature and started figuring out what I knew from a sociological perspective, but then what all of the behavioral nutritionists knew and psychologists and family, um, you know, researchers. And, and just over time, this perspective about thinking about habits and having what I call the habits mindset instead of the nu- nutrition mindset took hold and, and sort of the rest is history. I started writing about it, and lo and behold, a few years later, I wrote the book. Right. And, you know, I was immediately drawn to this idea of the nutrition mindset, um, which which when I first started reading your book, I I misinterpreted and I thought you were saying something like, don't worry about nutrition. And it turns out that you're saying, don't think about food in terms of nutrients and which really resonated with me because the a book that I co-wrote with uh, T. Colin Campbell is called Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition. And it makes that exact point from a very sophisticated biochemical scientific perspective that thinking about nutrients is inaccurate. It's, it's wrong. And it just it leads people to make the very kind of choices that that you talk about. So talk about what for you, what what is the nutrition mindset and what's wrong with it? The nutrition mindset is everything you hear in popular culture, which is taking food apart and thinking about the nutrients that are in the different foods that we want to eat and then saying that you should eat this food because it has vitamin A or you should eat that food because it has antioxidants. And when we start to do that, then we get away from the actual food. So we're now susceptible to uh, marginal foods that food manufacturers are making because they're adding those foods. I mean, there, there are cookies out there that are being sold as having as much iron as spinach and, <laughs> and all the nutrients that you need to just eat a couple of, you know, cookies. And, of course, we all know sort of in our gut that that is just a ludicrous statement that you can't be healthy living on cookies. But parents who get worried about getting nutrients into their kids have adopted a similar kind of mindset where they're just thinking about, okay, how do I get calcium into my child? And so then they start to use tactics that we all know, like just have two more bites, or if you want to have your dessert, you have to have, you know, your broccoli or or any of these kinds of pressure tactics. And it just turns out that there's just an accumulation of research that shows that those tactics all backfire 
for so many reasons, but mostly because they create a really bad dynamic where it's pressure-filled, where we're teaching children habits, in other words, their behaviors that they exhibit over the long haul that are exactly opposite to the ones that we want to teach them. So a, a quick example is just that we all know that one of the 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 goals with kids is to teach them to eat a variety of foods, and yet parents inadvertently teach children the exact opposite because it's such a challenge and we have to minimize the fighting and the struggling and the amount of time we spend in the kitchen. And so we settle on a handful of family favorites that get the job done and get key nutrients into our kids, but in the process we're reinforcing the idea that it's correct and usual to eat a monotonous diet. So if I serve my children basically the same two or three things at every given meal, it's the regularity that they're learning instead of variety. And so if we think about the habits and we say, okay, variety is our goal, not the nutrition, we will start doing different parenting techniques that will teach variety and the nutrition actually comes along for, for the ride. Right. And, and I think that our, our culture, our consumer culture certainly encourages and reinforces this nutrition mindset. Like if you go to the store and you look at packaging, every product, no matter how crappy, is, always, is screaming about the one good thing about it. Right. This That's has right. protein and, and, and this stuff, has, this, this cereal has extra calcium and... You know, so that's right. We, it's 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 a, a great education to remind people that what we should be eating is food, and well, and if you think about the grocery store, that the quietest foods are the healthiest, <laughs> the ones that aren't screaming at you. You know, when you walk down the the vegetable aisle or the fruit aisle, like the banana is not screaming, you know, I have no fat <laughs> or, you know, gluten-free. I mean, it's just, it's quietly sitting there. So it is the quiet foods we, we ought to be eating. When you said that, I just had, I had a vision of a, a family trip to, uh, to Holland and we, we, we stumbled into the red light district, <laughs> right? All, all these, you know, <laughs> It's like, yeah, the sort of, you know, the sort of uh, girl that I'd want my son to meet is not sort of like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go to the supermarket with okay. a whole new. <laughs> whole exactly. New but, but the interesting thing about the nutrition dialogue in our culture is that most parents who I come across and, uh, you know, I talk to parents all the time in lots of different forums can have a reasonably good discussion about nutrition. So a lot of us feel ill-equipped to talk about nutrition because we may feel insecure about whether we can get into the nitty-gritties about antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids and sort of the details. But everybody really knows the basics. You know, carrots are not cookies. We all know that. And also, the food pyramid marketing strategy did a really good job. So everybody's really well-equipped to talk about the different food groups. And interestingly, I was just talking to some pediatricians who said that they do have patients who come in the office and, and they really don't know enough about nutrition, so we need to educate them. And when I said what I just said to you, which is like, I'm sure they know the basics about carrots and cookies, but they're still eating the cookies, not the carrots. The pediatricians agreed. So I think we can all, all say that we have, uh, have succeeded, wildly succeeded, in this country about educating the population about nutrition. But when you go and talk to people about eating habits, if you were to just start randomly asking people, 
what are good eating habits? And then if you give them a, like a cheat and say, there's only three, so what are they? People really stammer, and then they get embarrassed because it makes us all feel foolish that we can't just roll off the tongue what the eating habits are. But eating habits are behaviors that translate nutrition into action. And if you don't know what the habits are, what the behaviors are that you should do in order to eat well, then how can you do it? And how can you teach your kids to do it? So we need to have a discussion. We need to start talking about habits. And because there are only three, it makes it really easy. Right. Well, in general, I think we are completely illiterate as a society when it comes to habit formation, uh, habit maintenance, and, and habit change, right? You, and we see this every year with New Year's resolutions, that, that as, as adults <laughs> with agency, we go, oh, I want to stop smoking. I will I go to going, the gym. <laughs> I want to start going to the gym. Like, we, we don't understand habits at all. We just think, oh, I'm going I'm to muscle through this change, and they, never, they rarely succeed. So before, before we get into the three habits, I, my, my favorite part of the book is, is it was, the, was the part where you're like calling me out on all of the mistakes I made. And, it, you know, and, and it's, it's fun because my kids are now, you know, 19 and, uh, and, and 16. And like they're, they're on their own. I don't like get them to try foods or force them or complain much about their choices. But so I have some distance, but could you talk about what you call the nutrition traps? You know, so the parents have this idea, I've got to get good nutrition, good food, and the right amount of food into my kids. And what are all the counterproductive different ways that we go about this? Well, I mean, we, we've just talked about a couple of them in the sense that we, um, we bribe our kids, you know, we, we start measuring how many mouthfuls they have to eat, we uh, start feeding them a repetitive diet, we dumb down the diet so that we can, uh, you know, make sure that they'll eat it. We don't really like it. It's what the, I call the at least diet. So we, we think that this has a lot of added sugar, like, a, you know, sweetened yogurt or something. And we say, well, but at least it, you know, it, it's got calcium in it. So we make all sorts of excuses. And of course, one of the reasons that we do that is because we bring our own personalities into the parenting relationship. So a lot of times when we think about what does it mean to influence, you know, our own behaviors influencing our kids, we start thinking about our own eating habits. And of course, our own eating habits matter, but it's really our parenting habits that have the biggest impact. So for instance, most parents that I've encountered are somewhere on the continuum of what I call being a hunger avoider. So we're afraid that our kids are going to be hungry, and sometimes that's for practical reasons because, you know, we, we want them to sleep through the night. But sometimes it's just purely emotional. Uh, we get gripped by the throat because we are afraid our kids are going to be hungry, for instance. And I have, I have some of this. So when my daughter was little, when she would come home from school, I'm talking about preschool and kindergarten, I always worried that I had sent her enough food, and that's one of the things I would start questioning her about. You know, did you, did you eat enough? So being a hunker avoider as a parenting paradigm for this relationship means that we're going to do anything we can to make sure our kids aren't hungry. And that means that when we're at meals, if our children don't eat what we've decided to provide, we're going to start looking through the refrigerator and the cupboard and saying, well, what about this? What about this? And when that happens, we have switched roles where the parents are sort of 
are supposed to be in control of this, I mean, we have to have a parenting strategy that brings our kids in. So don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about being um, authoritarian, sort of my way or the highway, but parents really do need to set the scene and the structure. But as soon as we are dipping into our hunger avoider, our fears, and our kids get to start being the little kings and queens where you hold up a food and they go, nope, and then you hold up another food and they go, nope, and you know you keep holding up foods until they get a yep, <laughs> then we've switched roles with our kids and they're taking the lead and we're following them. And so there are many traps like that from the parenting perspective where we have to figure out how to switch the roles again so that we're taking the lead, but we also have to be cognizant of whatever our own parenting habits are because if you really are afraid that your kids will be hungry or if you're really, really obsessed with how much nutrition they're going to have or you don't like conflict, there, there are lots of different par- paradigms, um, then that hampers the number of techniques that you can think about. And that's inherently the problem in how we shape our kids' behaviors because because we're not talking about habits and because we're not talking about what this means in terms of behavior and shaping behavior, parents open up their toolbox and they really don't have very many tools in there. So they've got pressure, you know, they've got bribe, they've got feed the same foods over and over again, and, and that's where the, the problem is. And so if we expand the discussion culturally, then people will have more tools, and that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. So there was the, the the hunger avoider is one. Then then another one is the peacemaker. Um, and there's, right. there's all these different. And I'm imagining it's even worse when you have two parents who are sort of both in the fray and they have different <laughs> different styles. Right. So you have the yep. the authoritarian, you know, my way or the highway, and then the the secret conciliate conciliator. Right. Uh, right. And I'll tell you another thing that's really not very helpful in terms of how feeding kids get discussed is talking too much about child development and the stages that our our kids are going to go through if they're, you know, in sort of normal development. Not that we shouldn't have that information. So, for instance, I talk to a lot of parents who get very concerned when their kids who used to eat everything when they were just brand new eaters, all of a sudden around 18 months, two years old, start to cut back. And I always tell them, like, you know, that's a normal stage of development that kids at that age are starting to really work on controlling their environment. They're learning how to walk. They're learning how to talk. And and so control is a really big thing. But there is a parenting paradigm, which I call it's, you know, it's just a phaser where they know so much about child development that they say, oh, this is normal. And then they feel like because it's normal, they can't shape it. And then they get held hostage by the stage of development. And I always liken this to the stage that infants and toddlers go through where they are feeling separation anxiety. And if you are really just thinking about child development, you say, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, separation anxiety, so, so now what? Are you just going to say, therefore, I can't be apart from my child for the next year or however long separation anxiety lasts? Or do you say, so now I need to pull out another set of tools that will help my child travel through this phase and come out 
successfully. So can I support my child proactively in terms of growth and change? And that's the same thing with food. So when kids go through that neophobic stage where they start to be scared of new foods around two years old, we don't just want to throw our hands up and say, well, that's a normal stage of development. We want to say, well, what can we do to get our kids through this stage? And our cultural dialogue about development is just as hampering as our nutrition dialogue because we say, well, that's normal. And that's all we say, and so parents throw their hands up and don't know how to get through it. So we do need to start talking about how this is really not about food. This is really about parenting. If your child has trouble going to sleep, you figure out how to teach your child to sleep. If your child is afraid to take a bath or brush his teeth, you don't say, oh, well, he'll figure it out later. (laughs) Um, We work our way through it and teach them the habits that they need, you know, we teach them to brush their teeth, whether or not they they like it, we teach that to them. And we need to have the same kind of philosophy and orientation towards eating. Right. It's interesting, you know, there's, there's not really industries out there that have like bath alternatives, right? If there were, (laughs) we'd be having this, right? The problem is that there's all this like junk out there that is, is highly palatable, that looks like food and smells like food, and we give it the name food. And, and so, so we can't, you know, so in these other places, we don't really have an out, we don't have a, a, an alternative to toothbrushing and basic hygiene and getting dressed and things like that. It's got to happen. With food, there's this whole fake world that we uh, comfort ourselves with and saying, well, at least they're eating something. Exactly. (laughs) There's no bath alternative. I love that. Um, But let me just say that one of the reasons that we don't need a bath alternative is because parents can really strong arm their kids into taking a bath. So I don't need my kid to want to take a bath she can cry her way through the whole 10-minute procedure or two minutes, I can probably get it done. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, nature makes her fall asleep or I can strong-arm her into the car seat. I mean, there's all these things that I can do to force my child to do what I want him or her to do, except in the food domain, we cannot make our kids eat. And even the idea that some people put forth, which is, well, just let them get hungry and they'll eat, which is true for some percentage of the population. There are kids who will just not eat. And because we're scared that they won't eat, that they push us past our capacity to let nature take its course. So it is true that most kids won't starve themselves, right? They will eventually eat, but they can usually hold out longer than parents can. And so then we teach them the wrong lesson, which is, yeah, the longer you hold out, the more likely you'll be successful. So that's really counterproductive. But that's an added problem. And so what we have to do, which is why it's so challenging, is from the get-go, and it doesn't seem like that we think little kids can do this, but from the get-go, we have to teach our children how to make the decisions to eat the food that we want them to eat. And that is key. And when they're really young, let's say, you know, just beginning eaters, of course, we can't talk to them about nutrition. And furthermore, all the research shows is that in America, when you talk to people about nutrition, they end up thinking that nutritious foods suck. You know, well, I got to eat that, not that it tastes good. 
So the more we say, eat this apple because it's got good food and good nutrients and, you know, it's got fiber, it's got, you know, vitamins, it's, the more we're saying that's the only reason to eat that food. And we've inadvertently abdicated all the good words, all the yum, gooey, chocolatey, rich, you know, all the good words. We've abdicated them to the junk food because we hold up healthy food and we say, eat this. Look, it's all over the Internet. Eat this because it has this nutrient and that antioxidant, et cetera. And then you you read articles about the brownies or the cookies or the ice cream, and it says how delicious it is. So if we if we took back that vocabulary and applied it to healthy food, we would see a big change in how people think about food. And that's really what we need to do with our small children, which is not tell them about why it's healthy, but why it's delicious. And if we're not making that food delicious, then we have to change that. Mm. Yeah, at some point in the book, you say that you know most of us eat, for, or kids certainly eat for hedonic reasons for pleasure, mm-hmm. and I would say that's right. that's true of adults as well. Um, you know that that's that's kind of our uh, our programming is to is to. And I would say that's a good thing. We shouldn't say that with embarrassment. We should embrace that because it is pleasurable, and. Why should we turn it into sort of like medicine and other cultures embrace how wonderful it is to eat and they know much less about nutrition and yet they eat better than we do because they know how to eat well. And here's the thing is that as parents, if we dumb down the food we're giving our kids, if we're using the at least foods, we're saying, well, I wish my children didn't eat this, but, but at least it's got protein. When we start to serve the the really healthy food like the vegetables that we're cooking, we tend to do things like steam it because we also hear that all over the place, like that's the healthiest way to eat vegetables. But honestly, broccoli that's been steamed cannot really compete with something that comes out of a box because the foods that are coming out of a box have been, you know, crafted to reach the bliss point in terms of sugar, salt, and fat. So... We need to make healthy food taste better by cooking it better. And if the overall diet is getting better, then we can compromise. And I put that in air quotes. If you could see me, you'd see I was doing air quotes around compromise because I don't really mean it's compromising it, but that's how people think by cooking something, sauteing it in olive oil and garlic or, or adding a little bit of a cream sauce. Not the same thing every day and not to do it to get your kids to eat it, but because we're eating this food and it's delicious that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of a book called The Pleasure Trap by uh, Alan Goldhammer and Doug Lyle, which they talk about pleasure is actually, you know, you say we shouldn't apologize for this. Ple- you know, pleasure is actually how humans, how every species decides what's good for it. That, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we have a sweet tooth because fruit is incredibly good for us. Um, we like fat. Because in times of, of famine and scarcity, it was a good, you know, anything that had a lot of fat on it was uh, uh, a, you know. Going to keep you alive. It was going to keep you alive. <laughs> it was against, you know, future famine. And, and the, the problem is that these, um, you know, these very positive associations w- w- in which we can trust our bodies have really been compromised by an industry and by, by a civilization yeah. that, that makes, you know, the, the, the three-time-a-year feast available three times a day. 
Exactly. And the idea that if you know better, you'll do better, which is the idea behind nutrition education, just has not been proven to be true. And think about smoking, right? Remember back in the, I don't know whether it was the 70s or the 80s, when the strategy to get people to stop smoking was to show them pictures of blackened lungs. Mm -hmm. And it didn't have as big of an effect as people thought it would because if you were a smoker, which I was at the time, you thought, well, I know it's bad for me, but I'm getting something out of it. Like I, I can't stop or I don't want to stop or I'm not going to think about it or it's not going to happen to me or some other kind of irrational thinking. But we weren't driven by no better, do better. But, of course, as soon as we started to change the environment where it was more difficult to smoke and there was a cultural tide against smoking, then smoking rates really dropped. And it's the same thing with eating, which is we can't appeal to people, you know better, you'll do better. We have to appeal to what they want and in terms of their habits. And that's how you shape how people eat. So let's, let's talk about the three habits. And, you know, this, this was you know, long after the book's on the shelf and I have forgotten the details, I will remember these three habits. And I think the, they're, they're so simple and fundamental and powerful that, you know, it's, it's crazy that we didn't think of them until you thought of them. Like, like it's so obvious once I read it. Well, so thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me the credit. But I just want to say that I didn't make these up. And that's actually what's so surprising. I was, I had already formed in my head this idea of habits, but I didn't really also, just like the rest of the population, didn't know how many there were or which ones were important. And, uh, you know, this is like going back 10 years now or so. I was doing some research on the food pyramid because I wanted to know how it came about. And I was on the USDA website and I'm sort of back in the back pages that nobody really goes to. And I was reading about the food pyramid, and there was a section where it said the food pyramid is based on three principles, proportion, variety, and moderation. And I just, it was like, ding, 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 there you go. And then there was some kind of sentence that says, um, you know, this, this, these principles are not for the general public, but they are for educators to use when they're talking to the general public. And I was, I was really shocked because I thought proportion, variety, and moderation are so much easier to understand than five servings of this and two servings of that and 12 servings of the other. And, and, and when I started talking about proportion, variety, and moderation, everyone else had the same aha moment. So it really is. It just all boils down to these three things. Okay, so let's let's go over them one at a time. And I, I just want to say for for my listeners who are who are in the plant based movement, the word moderation means something different here than 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 you think. So uh, take take a deep breath because <laughs> there's there's a way in which uh, we don't like the word moderation in the plant based community, which we can we can talk about maybe if it comes up. But let's let's start oh. with, with proportion, which for me is the 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 single most important of the three. Yeah, proportion is just about ratios, and it's about looking at your overall diet and saying, what kinds of foods do I eat most frequently? 
And we want, from a proportion perspective, of course, to eat the healthiest foods the most frequently and then moderately healthy foods and then the least healthy foods the least frequently. And, and the thing is, is that people know this. We often talk about in our popular culture, we, we sort of use the word balance. We say, as long as you have a balanced diet, it's okay. And a lot of times what people mean when they say balance is proportion, which is as long as you eat you know, only the junk sometimes. The reason I don't use the word balance, aside from the fact that this is, you know, the words that the USDA used, is that as, you, as we talk about three habits, you'll see that the word balance can mean any of them. And so when a word has multiple meanings, it becomes less meaningful. And one of the things that I see people doing when they use the word balance is that they change the meaning opportunistically. So if I want to eat this food, I'll say, well, as long as I have a balanced diet, what I mean is I'm not going to eat it that frequently. But if I want to have a big portion, I say, well, as long as my diet is balanced, and what I really mean today, I want to eat a lot of food. I mean, so we can switch the meaning of it. So that's why I just reject that term altogether. So, um, so proportion is, it's really just, just fundamental. But I do want to say that the key to proportion is being honest about the food that we're eating or that we're giving our kids. And a lot of the stuff, I'm not anti, you know, food, you know, manuf- you know manufactured food. I'm not really anti-boxed food. I'm not anti-anything. And I've gotten taken some heat because I even think that there's a place in the diet occasionally for something like a Pop-Tart, <laughs> um, which nobody can even really call food. But uh, we just, when we are eating out of boxes, we are not eating the healthiest foods. And so we have to be honest and put foods in our diet in the right order. So the healthiest foods the most frequently. And most parents have their eyes on the junk. And so it's really the middle foods. It's the crackers, like sort of a goldfish cracker, pretzel, you know, idea that really hangs us up because they're not really healthy, but because we we think of them as healthier than potato chips, for instance, which is a very low bar. Um, They sort of get lumped in with the healthy food. And so really being honest about the food is, is key to this, to the, to this principle. Right. And what I like about it is it really, to do it well, we really have to look at a dietary pattern as opposed to a single choice, a single meal, even a single day. You know, just this idea of, I'm going to eat the healthiest foods the most and the least healthy foods the least. And, and, mm-hmm. and what I like about that is, though, even though you and I have different perspectives on what healthy foods are, right? So you're not writing from a plant-based, a vegan, vegetarian perspective. Right. So there's a lot of food. Like, like I, w- I would look at your tables and I would move a lot of stuff around. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> but it doesn't matter because... The, the principle is the thing. So for, for, for me and for people who, who follow a plant-based diet based, based on what I think is, uh, is really overwhelming evidence, but when, when, we, when we look at that, say we can follow the same principle. And, That's right. You know, so, so even for someone who says, who disagrees, who says there's no place in the diet for Pop-Tarts, the principle right. still, still applies. <laughs> so, you know, so if I see Pop-Tarts as like the ultimate evil or even like an egg as the ultimate evil, then I put it over there on that side and say, That's I, right. I have it in proportion to how healthy I believe it is. 
That's right. But here's the thing, um, and I'm really, and I agree with you. And let me just say this: that the thing that's really great about this pr- principle is that even two-year-olds can understand it. Um, but, but just going even one step further about figuring out which foods fit into the boxes for you, let me just say two things. So um, even I'm not arguing for, for Pop-Tarts, but let me just say I, I eat Pop-Tarts about once every like three or four years. So for me, that's, <laughs> that's proportion for a Pop-Tart, and so that's great. If I did that, I would have this giant wall calendar. <laughs> I'd be making X's. <laughs> uh, 2019, can't come fast enough. <laughs> Actually, you know, but I want to say that, that, that every once in a while when I think that I want one, and all I do is flip it over and read the nutrition facts, and I just see how crappy it is. And then I think, and this is really the principal proportion right here. I look at the nutrition facts, and I go, do I want to have this? Or do I want to have like the four other things that I could have instead of this that, you know, I also want sometimes. And I, I almost always, except for, like I said, once every couple of years, go for all the other stuff. And so that is proportion in, in really in, in practice. But the other thing that I really like about the principle is that every family can implement proportion wherever they are starting because we can start with the diet that your kids have today and we can start shifting it when we think about proportion. We don't have to go cold turkey and we don't have to go from whatever diet we have now to whatever we diet that we think is the most amazing diet. So we can make incremental changes and that's where the payoff is because it's very difficult to sustain a very huge change for a long period of time for most people. Some people can do it, but if we make incremental changes, then we can stick with them and have successes. And this is really true with especially small children. Parents often ask their kids to eat foods or to try foods that are just too challenging for those kids. And so the kids won't even play the game. They just say no. And what I always say to those parents is you need to scale back. And so when I talk to pediatricians, for instance, one of the things I say is let's not tell people that they absolutely can't serve their kids canned fruit in heavy syrup. Now, we might all agree that that's just not the best thing for you to eat, that it would be better to have fresh fruit, or if you're going to have canned fruit, it would be canned fruit in in water or fruit juice or something. But if a family is starting from a position where there's no fruit and all they want to, the kids want to eat is candy or whatever, then canned fruit and heavy syrup is a good start. And from a proportion perspective, it's going to start us on the path towards those foods. So we can have gateway drugs that send us south to the bad foods, and we can have gateway foods that send us north to the healthy foods. Right, and because you're you're ma- you're maintaining the same principle all the way through, you're you're not suddenly like launching a whole new initiative where everybody has to learn a whole new way of thinking. You're just That's you're just right. you're just swapping out the details. That's right. And from a proportion perspective, one of the things that's really interesting to start evaluating when we're thinking about our kids' eating habits. I mean, our own too, but we're you know thinking about shaping kids here is that. Foods that are on the, what I would say, the top end of the scale, you know, the really healthy foods, fundamentally, 
taste different than the foods that are at the bottom end. And so when we start thinking about proportion, we become sensitized to thinking about shaping kids' taste preferences, thinking about texture, thinking about what things look like and what the experience of eating is. And then we realize that if we want them to jump into the deep end where they're eating really the healthiest foods, that we have to start shaping their taste preferences in that direction, and proportion is a vehicle for doing that. So, you know, as I said, there's there's elements in, of the details that you're not going to convince me that, you know, chicken and eggs belong in the healthy section. But there is one thing that you wrote that is very challenging to me, and I think you might be right. And um, and it's about this idea of making what look like junky foods healthy. So I can make mm-hmm. you cookies that are from from any sort of nutritional standpoint stellar. They're sort of you know whole mm-hmm. food, you know oat flour sweetened with dates, uh, you know raisins in them. They 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 like nutritionally they would be much healthier than let's say like spaghetti and meatballs, but mm-hmm. they are they look like cookies or things like popcorn, right. a whole food, and and you say that you you talk about something called classification conflict. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like one of the things that we're really proud of in the vegan plant-based community is how we can make things that are like really healthy, but that look like junk food so our kids will eat them. And you think that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I do if we're thinking about habits, only because when we healthify junky food, we tend to overuse them. So cookies are cookies. And if if you can make healthy cookies and your kids like healthy cookies, then it would be better for them to eat healthy cookies compared to unhealthy cookies. But that doesn't mean that they should eat those cookies more frequently than cookies in general. The category of cookies gets folded into your diet some percentage of the time, and you have to decide what that is But because it's based on the whole diet, and I can't just pull out cookies and say you can have cookies every day, but you could have cookies every day if you weren't having other junk and we weren't eating too many cookies. So um, from from a habits perspective, it just we have to think about what it is we're teaching our kids. So, um, you know, a muffin is not the same thing as fresh fruit or healthy, healthy pizza is still not going to be you know, the healthiest food out there, even when it is healthy, it teaches our kids to eat pizza. So for instance, I knew a family once who, where the mom was understandably just so sick and tired of fighting with her kids about dinner and they liked pizza. So she made them pizza almost every night and she made really healthy pizza. But what she didn't understand is that she was reinforcing the habit of eating pizza, and every time she served pizza, she made it more difficult to change their diet. And that's because she was violating the second principle, the second habit, which is variety. Okay, so we'll get we'll get to variety in a second, but I, just, I want to push back a little bit on the. So, I mean, we think of pizza as unhealthy because of most of the pizzas that's out there. But if you make a pizza that's, you know, whole wheat crust, lots of vegetables, no oil, no cheese, um, you know, again, from a nutrition standpoint, it's as healthy as anything else. But you're still saying our kids are going to go out into the world of pizza and they're going to have a pizza habit that we're not going to be able to control. Is that is that the right? Well, there's two. 
Yeah, I mean, there's two, well, there's two elements. One is, is that, you know, kids do get launched into the world, and they're not always going to be at home eating your healthy pizza. They're going to go out into the world where there's the, the greasy pizza from the place on the corner, and they're going to start eating that pizza, first of all. But second of all, it, it, it goes back to this issue of variety. From a nutrition perspective, I don't think that you can argue that even eating a healthy food all the time is going to give you the full range of nutrients that you need in your diet. And so we have to have variety even if we're only playing in the healthy pool um, because each food brings its own unique set of nutrients. And this is where you have to think about nutrition, right? Every food brings its own set of nutrients. And in order to have a really truly healthy diet, we have to have a little bit of all of them. And so if your pizza is always going to have the same essential set of nutrients and you're not eating other foods because you're always eating pizza, then you're limiting the kind of nutrients that your body is taking in. Now, is it better to eat healthy pizza all the time or healthy cookies all the time than it is is to eat sort of crappy versions of those? Of course, but it doesn't mean that you're eating a healthy diet. And if you're struggling with your kids, and this is the most important thing, if your kids are only eating four things or six things, even if they're healthy, and you want to teach them to have a broader palate, you can't do it by giving them the same food all the time because what is that teaching them? Teaching them to eat the same food all the time. Right. And that's, that's what really started you know, shaking my world is this idea that the habits of a lifetime, I have to look at it much more broadly than did I win this meal? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I can I can exactly. I can do the pizza and give myself a high five because it's got broccoli, it's got uh, red peppers, onions, garlic, olives, artichokes on it, and they got it down. But am I just teaching them to eat pizza? Right, but even when it's I once um, encountered an adult, so we're not talking about kids here, who very proudly said to me, you know, I eat the same thing every night for dinner, but it's really healthy, and I can't remember the exact details of what the meal was, but it was something like. Um, kale and broiled fish and something else. I can't remember what it was. But, and I didn't say this to him because it wasn't a professional context in which he had said this to me. But what I wanted to say is like, even if that's really healthy for you, you're missing out on all the other things that are healthy for you. And even though, you know, we bow down to the kale God right now, kale just isn't the be all and end all. There are other foods out there. So, um, it, of course, it's better to eat healthy versions of those, like I said, but um, it's not, it's not going to lead you to the healthiest style, um, eating style, but especially with our kids. If we're trying to expand what they eat, if we're trying to teach them to have the healthiest diet out there, you can't do it without teaching the principle of variety. Right. So I'm, I'm hearing people in my head saying, okay, that's all very well, but how do you do it? And I don't want you to kind of give away your whole book because I do want people to go out and buy your book because it is it, every page is is like oh there's how I do that there's you know but in general so people right now are thinking variety great you don't know my kid 
Right. So the biggest stumbling block that parents have when they start thinking about variety as a concept is that they then say, but my kid doesn't eat new food. How can I have variety? My kid only eats five things or 10 things or something like that. So here's the thing. Variety means different. It doesn't mean new. And so all you have to do to implement basic variety is make a list of all the things your kids eat, including for snacks, in breakfast and dinner, everything. Just make a big list. And then dedicate the idea that you're not going to serve the same food two days in a row, and you'll rotate through that list. And if the list is so small, where it is sometimes, right, some people really are struggling. If the list is so small that you can't eliminate something for, you know, every other day, then what I say is make an effort to not serve the same food at the same meal. So a lot of people will say, you know, but my child, you know, let's say lives on cereal. So, okay, but serve cereal for breakfast one day, serve it for lunch another day, and dinner a different day, and snack a different day. You will be introducing some amount of variety. I, I had a client where the child really only ate a particular sandwich at school, and there were a lot of dynamics going on because we were talking about school. So instead of saying switching up the sandwich from day to day, we talked about cutting the sandwich into different shapes for day to day. And, and, and for most of us, we would go like, oh, that looks like the same sandwich that I had. That's not different. But for that child, that was variety. So again, it's like proportion. We have to start wherever we are and introduce the principle in an amount that our kids can tolerate, which pushes them a little bit out of their comfort zone, but not so much that they refuse to play the game because they can refuse to play the game. And that's what makes this so difficult. Why eating and teaching kids about food is different than, for instance, teaching them to take a bath. Mm -hmm. And variety is, is, is so important from just a, you know, a biological perspective in terms of diversity, right? Mm -hmm. that, that no yep. ecosystem relies on one or two species, you know, the, the, the more diversity you have, it's like the roots of an oak tree, uh, right. make, making it able to withstand lots of things. So again, the, the habit of variety is the most important thing as opposed to the details of what that variety looks like. Exactly. I, I would agree with you. And, you and have, the third habit. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just, just um, there was a whole bunch of stuff, especially around helping kids try new foods that I thought was just brilliant, um, like the concept of turning them into little food critics, into not asking, mm -hmm. them, did you like it or how, you know, or, or stuff like that. But, you know, is it crunchy? Is it salty? Is it soggy? Giving them a, a vocabulary, you know, which to right. me is just, it's just like a appreciation of life, the more words and concepts and discernments you have for something, the more you can enjoy it. And so, so I want to say that a lot of you know, I'm not, we're not going to go into the details in this in this short interview, but a lot of the 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 tricks and techniques you have are just to turn dinner time and meal times from battlefields into places where families can enjoy each other. Yeah, and I would say that. It really is about shifting the goal from getting food into our kids, which is really a one-way sort of coercive model. I'm getting foods into my kid. He doesn't have anything to do with it. To a teaching model where we look at our kids and we say, 
oh, my child needs to learn certain kinds of skills. So let me just for, for really quickly just say that one of the reasons kids say I don't like it isn't because they don't like something. A lot of times they haven't even tasted it. So we've all seen that kid who looks at a food and says, I don't like it. <laughs> and we wonder why they say that. And we, they say that because parents say this to their kids, just taste it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. And we think as parents that that sentence is the way that we're eliminating pressure from our kids. But, but we're not. What, we're, what, our, what our kids hear is, if I do like it, I will have to eat it. And there are many reasons why a child might not want to eat a particular food at a given moment. Um, some of it's just because they might be wanting to razz us that day. I mean, or, or they had their heart set on, you know, pasta. I don't know. Um, but what happens is that through the repetition of saying that to our kids, we've taught them that the only legal out is to say, I don't like it. And so, and then when they get older, there's another legal out. It's called, I'm not hungry. But those are the only two ways that children can influence what they are allowed to eat. And so children overuse that phrase, I don't like it. And it's not that they're being manipulative. I mean, they are, but, but it's not a bad thing. They're just trying to get to the, their goal. And their goal is to influence what they're allowed to eat on any given day. And they use the language that we've told them to use and which we know is effective. Because what happens to a parent is, is I hear I don't like it. And then I think, oh, well, I can't serve that to my kid because each of us knows what it feels like to be served food that we don't like. I mean, I, I really remember being at somebody's house one time when I was a child where I'd been taught that when you were at someone's house, you ate what was put in front of you. And, and there was an eggplant dish and I'd never had eggplant before and it, I didn't particularly like it. And, and actually, you know, I, I don't like it now. And, um, and I was choking it down because that's what I was taught to do as a polite kid. And, and, of course, I was really lucky. The hostess looked at me and she said, if you don't like something, please don't eat it. <laughs> and I put, put my fork down as fast as a person could. But we all know what it's like to be, be given food we don't like. And so when our kids say, I don't like it, we can't serve it to them. And we all know that it takes 12, 15, whatever. It might as well be 2 million exposures before a child might come to like something. And exposure is not the same thing as eating. So we do need to give our kids a different vocabulary. And I do talk in the book about how to do that and how to take the pressure off and how to introduce kids to new foods um, in a way that gets them to explore them as opposed to just sort of like shutting them out and saying, I don't like it. Great. And so you mentioned the second uh, legal out is I'm not hungry, and which leads us, I think, to the third principle, which is moderation. And as I, as I warn people, yeah. moderation is not what you're thinking. So, Dina, what is moderation to you? Well, I'm, I'm curious what, you, what your listeners would think moderation is. <laughs> but in, in my perspective, moderation is really about portion size. And it's about eating the, the right amount, which means uh, eating when you're hungry. But by extension, eating when you're hungry means stopping when you're full. So that's where the portion size comes in. And if we think even a little bit more deeply about this idea of eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, it also means not eating because you're bored, you're sad, you're lonely, um, or because 
um, in my case, you're, you're bad in the car and your mom wants you to not to cry and so she gives you snacks mm-hmm. <laughs> and teaches you the wrong habit. Or, you know, you see parents do this all the time. You have a boo-boo and so you get a cookie so you don't cry or because I need to talk on the phone, I need to keep you quiet. So we don't want to teach our kids to eat for emotional reasons. So it's really about eating the right amount and for the right reasons. Right. And that's, and that's so simple and, and, and so powerful. That, and, and, and that's what I realized was my main set of sins, was turning my kids into kids, who, into, into humans, who were going to override their natural satiety. And, mm-hmm. and they were confused, you know, they, they weren't sure when they were hungry and when they weren't. And I see this in myself That's and right. I can see it in, in the way I was raised around food, that this is my, my main challenge is I don't know when I'm hungry and I don't know when I'm full. And so to be able right. to think of the gift of being able to give your kids just that. Right. Well, and what's so interesting here is that the research shows that parents are much more in tune with their children's hunger and satiety signals when they're infants before they language. But then when they become toddlers, we are very sensitive to their hunger cues, but we tend to ignore their fullness cues. And that's because kids start to use the language incorrectly, partly because they have, once they once they start layering language on top of the physical sensation, it's hard to know, does this feeling turn into the word hunger or does this feeling turn into the word fullness? And as parents, we can see our kids' behavior deteriorate when they're hungry, but it's harder to see behavior about fullness. Um, so some of it's about language, but also some of it's because toddlers, of course, are interested in not sitting at the table. And so they'll say, I'm not hungry, and they'll, they'll go off and, and play. And then two minutes later, they are hungry. And so we need to create some order. And so parents, as a way of solving that problem, often just tell their kids, well, eat a few more bites, or you have to eat now, or you know, if you want to get your dessert, you have to eat more. So we can coerce kids into eating more food than they might particularly want. But there are other ways of parenting kids to create order in the family life. So when we, when we have food available and when we don't have food available, but where we don't have to teach children to override their internal signals. And there was a study that I talk about all the time. It was a small study, but it really jogged with my experience. And it, it came to the conclusion that 85% of the parents of young children have one primary goal, and that's getting more food into their kids. Hmm. But if we think about this from a lifetime perspective, we can't spend the first couple years of our kids' lives teaching them to eat one way and then expect them to somehow presto grow up into kids who eat a different way. Right. And, you know, when I, when I look at those three habits and the big fix and all the, and the strategies, what I, what I get, what I realize when I um, evaluate all the mistakes I made is it's like if your kid isn't doing their homework and, you know, you want them to get good grades in school, of course. So you go and do their homework for them every night. And that's kind of what I was doing around food as opposed to creating an environment and role modeling and incentives for my kids to, to learn to do their own homework. 
And it is true. We have to let them make mistakes. We have to let them get hungry. We have to let them choose to eat too much sometimes and realize how it feels. You know, parents spend a lot of time. We do this all over the place. Like, don't roughhouse over there because someone's going to get hurt. Right? Um, and then no one gets hurt, so kids don't believe us. Um, uh, don't eat eat that, you'll get a tummy ache, but, but I, but I didn't get the tummy ache, so I don't believe you. Or if you, you know, so we're telling kids all the time what's going to happen, but we're saving them from themselves and we do need to let them make mistakes so that they learn the lessons. Right on. So if people want to learn more about you, I know that, you know, they should definitely, anyone, any parent with a kid under the age of 14 should get, it's not, (laughs) this, this should be, this, this should be given away with diapers. At, uh, I was going to say they should give it out in the hospital. <laughs> yes, this 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 should come home with your with your you know like you get the manual when you buy a toaster, right? It's in four That's different right. This book this book should be there. Uh, but if people want to follow you, you have a website. How, how else can they stay That's in touch? Right. And so I have a website called it's not about nutrition dot com where I regularly blog, and um, there are some free resource sheets that people can download from my website which talk about how to uh, introduce new foods or how what are some successful lunch packing strategies that you can employ so there are a bunch of resources on on it's not about nutrition.com awesome well dina rose thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today it's my pleasure thank you. thanks for having me on howard be well Okay, thanks. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. And if you did, this might be a really good one to share with others, with friends and families, with colleagues, because it's not doctrinaire. It's not about a way of eating that other people don't understand. It's not about spiritual stuff or permaculture or things that are really outside of the mainstream. Every parent can use this advice, whatever they feed their kids. We all know that there are certain things that are just junky and shouldn't be in their diets or not very much in their diets. And this is going to help people really make a first step if they've been struggling the way I had for so many years and the way maybe some of you have been struggling as well. If you're in the Raleigh area and you're listening to this today, um, October 13th, 2015, I'll be doing a reading and book signing and talk about Proteinaholic, which came out a week ago. Quail Ridge Books is the venue. It's in the same shopping center as the big Whole Foods on Wade Avenue. It starts at 7. Love to see you there. And if you uh, want extra credit, uh, a group of Nutritarians are meeting at Irregardless Cafe at 5.30. Um, I may be joining them for a bit before heading over to prep the reading. Speaking of Proteinaholic, if you haven't read it yet, you should. It's really good. At least that's what the uh, 19 averaging five-star reviews on Amazon are saying. So if you haven't gotten a copy of the book, you can find it from your local indie seller. You can find it online. You can probably even walk into one of the Barnes & Nobles and uh, pick up a copy. And if you would, leave a review on Amazon. That really helps us uh, spread the word. If you'd like to support this podcast in other ways, one really nice way is to make a donation. You can do that on the plantyourself.com page, and you can do a one-time or a small monthly. Think of it as a a subscription that you're doing to help support other people um, who can hear it but maybe not have the means to... um, 
to contribute. And I have to tell you that every, every little bit helps. Um, I've gotten some nice contributions in the past couple of weeks, which allowed me to go out and really upgrade the audio equipment. Um, I can now do um, mobile interviews. I don't just have to be on Skype at my own desk. Uh, and I upgraded my internet, got an office, and that's an extra 50 bucks a month. So the money really does help support this and keep it sustainable. Other ways to support, of course, are to share with social media friends um, and to leave a review on iTunes. Leave some stars and write what, what you think about the episode uh, or the podcast in general, and that can help other people find it as well. So the big news in the garden is we harvested our peanuts this morning, and it was really cool to see pulling out this kind of exotic looking plant with these weird angular shaped leaves in all directions. Then you pull it up and you see peanuts hanging from the roots, bits of dirt clumping to them, but recognizable peanuts. And so my wish is for you that if you may look at something familiar in your life and get a chance to see it in a whole new way, to see the newness, to see the wonder, to see the miracle in things that we just sort of take for granted. And with that, as always, be well, my friends.